Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. So, Danny, we're back with another one of our great um, uh, Sammy's finalists. Um, we have uh, Tom Davis, who's the director of the Office of Recapitalization and the Department of Housing and Urban Development. I think it's just a fantastic title. Uh, I would like to be the director of recapitalization. Uh, First, we got to learn what recapitalization is I, well, before I think, you want to be the director. Of no, that. but I think I think if you have capital, right? If you don't have capital, then you need to recapitalize. So that sounds <laughs> yeah. like a. You're not allowed to use the word in the definition. Oh, really? Maybe we'll, we'll oh, ask okay. Tom about All right. it. Well, maybe Tom knows. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, I hope so. So well, with that really inauspicious introduction, yes. why don't we turn it over to? to Tom Davis, who's going to tell us a little bit about what it means to be the director of the Office of Recapitalization, and uh, what we'd love to hear uh, more about, uh, well, frankly, something about, is the uh, the project that you worked on that uh, put you in the this uh, singular position of uh, being a SAMI's finalist. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so the Office of Recapitalization is really focused on uh, how... how how properties can get the funds to maintain and, and replace the roof, replace the boiler, um, upgrade kitchens and baths to make quality affordable housing uh, communities. And <clears throat> the rental assistance demonstration is a relatively new program that's really focused on uh, recapitalizing public housing. Uh, public housing has suffered from um, not having enough money to do proper maintenance for decades. Um, it's not a partisan difference. So it deteriorates, uh, the roofs leak, the air conditioning doesn't work, the heating doesn't work, that type of thing. Deferred maintenance. Deferred maintenance. So yeah. the Office of Paying for Deferred Maintenance. Yeah, you're right. That doesn't sound nearly as Well, good. you did this at GSA for federal buildings. Yeah. But this is for housing, particular low-income housing. Low-income housing within the public housing system, which is a particular kind of uh, subsidy stream for affordable housing. Um, and there was a study in 2010 that uh, found that just to repair the things that were broken, the things that should have already been replaced, would have cost $26 billion with a B. Um, and that that number was going up between $1 and $3 billion a year. Um, and that's not even to get ahead of anything. That's just to replace things that should already have been replaced. And as part of housing subsidy programs, is this something that the federal government budget and pays for on occasion, the, the you know, upkeep of public housing units? Yes, so public housing is funded entirely with um, direct appropriations, direct money from the federal government. Um, the tenants pay uh, rent based on their income, and the rest of the needs of the property are covered by direct funding from the federal government. And so the, the probability of getting 26 plus billion dollars in a single year to bring things current and increase the funding by a couple billion dollars every year um, was just not on the uh, not on the table. Right. Um, I imagine that that it's kind of a self fueling fire too. You don't do this maintenance; a leak in the roof becomes a hole in the roof becomes a replacement of everything underneath the roof. So, it it's very hard to. Uh, keep the buildings in good shape and, and you get into 
quality of life issues and health issues. Uh, you know, you get units with mold issues and um, and forget about the aesthetic stuff like kitchens that were installed with avocado green cabinetry and right. it's coming back too. It is coming back. Yeah, it's yeah. If you wait long enough, everything right. comes back. Right. So just curious, before we get into the program that you uh, that you helped lead and, and were nominated for, how does the how does HUD, the government, decide when these repairs are needed? How is that kind of program set up to when you know that's triggered? Okay, this set of housing is ready for some type of, does the tenant report it? Is it on a schedule? So standard public housing maintenance is figured out by the local housing authorities. They, okay. they own the properties and administer the um, the public housing. So some, they inspect it, they survey it, and they, yeah. have, they know that it's been 10 years, we should check on this or that, the other thing. Yes, okay. so the, the local housing authorities um, have capital plan documents and, and they know that they're gonna get within a range of what their budgets are gonna be from the appropriations each year and it goes up and down. But So HUD uh, transfers or pays down the money that's right. to the local housing authority who gets a budget for modernizing or recapitalizing these housing units. That's right. Got it. Okay. That's right. And so they're trying to figure out how to maintain their portfolio with the money that HUD provides. But um, so they'll stretch the, the, the life of a roof on one building in order to replace the boiler on another building and, yep. and really stretching what they can do. Right. So now you come along. So the, the rental assistance demonstration, which we refer to as RAD, um, is, uh, which I think is a great name. It's rad. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, is really exploring whether the transferring public housing to a different regulatory platform uh, can allow the housing authorities or their partners, they can form partnerships uh, with other entities, to tap into all of the funding sources that the rest of the real estate and particularly the affordable housing real estate world taps into. So for example, a housing authority um, is limited in the extent to which it can borrow money and get a mortgage. So if you have $300,000 in capital funding a year and a million dollar roof, they've got a, it's harder for them to sort of aggregate the money into um, a, a one-shot deal. There are ways to do it, um, but they are limited in the way they uh, can access uh, debt, they are limited in the ways that they can uh, tap into the low-income housing tax credit, uh, which is a, a tax-based uh, way to get equity investments from the private market. Um, so if they don't have any profit, there's no point of actually having a tax deduction or a tax credit. Yeah, the tax credit is, is not entirely driven by profit. It's a... a well, it's resellable. Um, it's a syndicated right. uh, tax credit that brings in equity investments in exchange for a commitment to provide affordable housing for a certain period of time. Um, and a housing authority is ineligible for? They're not ineligible, um, but the, uh, it, the, the rules for how a housing authority property can participate in the tax credit program um, are, uh, make it not as easy as uh, as in other contexts in the affordable housing industry. Um, so RAD was basically saying for housing authorities that want to participate, it's a voluntary program, um, they have the option to convert 
a public housing unit to a Section 8 unit, which uh, lots of folks have heard about Section 8. It's kind of affordable housing esoterica, the difference between the two, but the rules governing Section 8 are quite different from the rules governing public housing um, and the uh, Section and a Section 8 property can tap into other financing tools much more easily than a public housing property can. Um, so fundamentally, RAD is just moving from one regulatory platform to a different regulatory platform that has uh, less restriction on what can happen with the property. Um, but the implication of that is really pretty, pretty profound in... It's pretty rad. It's pretty radical, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in how the, how the owner of the property can asset manage their, their portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, so in the, the, the program's been running for about four years, um, and we have uh, in, uh, converted about 70,000 units, um, and those 70,000 units have been able to uh, leverage over $4 billion worth of construction work. Um, Through private, I, so, so making sure I understand this. So the, the property was public housing. Yep. Now it's Section 8 housing. That's right. Because it's Section 8 housing, it now has more options to draw in private financing rather mm -hmm. than government financing. Well, right. some of that private financing is, is through government encouraged through tax incentives. Through ta tax incentives and other things. But still, rather than going to the appropriators right. to get this, did you say $4 billion? Yeah, so if um, the, the amount of construction that has been done here, if it had been done just with the capital funding from appropriations, it would have taken 46 years for these housing authorities to do that work. Wow. Right. So, so tell, talk to us a little bit about the private financing. So what, what incentivizes private entities to put money into this rather than just have the government do it? It's the tax credit. You get, a, you get tax preferred status. So are there other triggers that so the, come into play? The biggest buckets of money are just normal uh, loans, uh, the kind that a homeowner would have on their home except different scale. Um, commercial debt or FHA insured debt, which uh, has a lower interest rate often. Who takes on the loan, the public housing? Uh, so the housing authority, uh, in many cases the housing authority stays the owner, and in many cases the housing authority partners with other private um, or nonprofit players to be the owner. Um, so the ownership entity takes on the loan. It, it, they create a, um, it's called a single purpose entity, they create a, a corporation or a, a joint venture that's a joint venture specific mm -hmm. to the property um, and that entity is the borrower um, so on the debt side they're just going either to a, a normal bank or to a bank that's participating with FHA insurance and get and get that get, get the loan and get the loan um, then the second uh, big category is the tax credits um, and um, when, a, when the owner applies for the tax credits, they, uh, the tax credits are administered by the states, um, delegated from the federal government, um, and the owner applies to the state to get the tax credits, and once they've secured that, they can go out to the equity markets and say, how much will people pay to uh, invest in this project? And by pay, I mean how much to 
will they invest in order to get this stream of tax credits over a 10-year period? Um, and, and the pricing for the tax credits goes up and down a little bit. Um, but the uh, investors are putting in money up front, and their return is this tax benefit that they get for 10 years. Um, and that tied to getting that tax benefit is that the property st stays affordable within a bunch of rules around uh, yeah. who they can so rent to. So it almost to. becomes like an annuity for them. And what yeah. about when they, going back to the, when they're borrowing the money, mm -hmm. they're paying that back. Yes. Because the properties are still income generating, even though they're low income, even though they're Section 8 or low income housing, they still generate income. Well, a little bit, yeah. Well, <laughs> so they get enough to cover the, their debt service. Yeah, so okay. what's happening is the Section 8, it becomes a, instead of, now co correct me if I'm wrong, instead of the federal government contributing to physical asset, what the federal government is doing then is contributing to the rent stream. That's right. And so you can take that rent stream, which is a small part from the, you know, the recipient of the Section 8 voucher and a big part from, you know, the public who's supporting the, Got it. the rent, and then you can take, uh, securitize that rent stream. So what kind of, what, what kind of obstacles do you run into when you want to, you know, kind of develop a program that basically moves these properties from one status to another and creates all these new flexibility, financing flexibilities. So getting a, a, a building from one program to another, there are all sorts of bureaucratic uh, uh, steps to do that um, because fundamentally we're, we're moving the funding to support these properties from one budget pot to a different budget pot. Um, so we do a lot of underwriting in the first place to make sure that this is a deal that works because we don't want to, uh, to do a conversion unless we can have some confidence that it's stable for 20 years. So we require them to uh, do uh, an assessment of all of their capital needs, what, when things are likely to need to be replaced. Um, we have uh, a lot of resident protections so that the residents who are living there um, can continue living there um, and not get pushed out. Um, and then uh, the conversion itself involves uh, review by the public housing folks, by um, my office, which is in a different silo at HUD, the Office of Housing, uh, by folks within um, the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, by folks within the Office of Community Planning and Development on relocation and resident protections, um, and obviously by the lawyers involved as well. So there's uh, getting a lot of different silos that haven't had as as many reasons to work as closely as they do in the RAD program to all make it work coherently as a single stream. Because you said, uh, what did you say, 70,000? 70, 70,000 units. So units far. have moved, have gone through this bureaucratic journey. Yes. That's, that's, that's a lot, sounds like a lot of bureaucratic mess you have to clean up. <laughs> To open, the, to open the aperture for 70,000 units to go through. Yes. It is getting, you're saying it's starting to get a little easier? It's a lot easier. Um, there's been, and that's part of what the nomination um, is about. The, the nomination is not me, it's a, it's a team of folks right. in all of these offices of, of HUD um, working together and figuring out what needs to happen for each of the, the offices to make this work smoothly. Um, and one of the things that uh, we, we have done in the last uh, year or so is we've dropped the processing time by like 40% um, because we 
figured out a lot of this, um, how to make this smoother, how to make it uh, really work for uh, the housing authorities and their partners that are coming in uh, to participate in the program. So a lot of it is figuring out this management challenge of what are the barriers and how do we how do we move things from one regulatory platform to another and move the money to follow? Yeah, I imagine one of your big challenges and maybe one of the things that help that you know that that kind of holds you back is not just the internal HUD process; it's it's the housing authority making the decision that it's willing to change the flavor of uh, of its asset from something it holds on its books and controls and manages to something then that it's kind of transferring into the Section Eight market and bringing in these outside investment partners. Yeah, often there's sort of a strategic planning element for mm. the housing authority. Um, some housing authorities are converting their entire portfolio, mm. um, which can have a lot of streamlining effect for the housing authority because where they used to maintain expertise in both the public housing program and the Section 8 program, um, they can move it all to the Section 8 program and, and focus their, their efforts on, on just that one regulatory program. Um, some housing authorities... Um, are uh, sort of bringing in the the private partners in a much more um, where the housing authority is is in a in a much more backseat kind of way. So they're going from being the owner and operator to being uh, the rent subsidizer. The rent subsidizer. Mm -hmm. um, so there's often a, a real sort of what does the housing authority see as its vision for its own organizational future, and what's the it, it can sometimes be a trigger moment for them to think through what's their strategic plan for asset management, for staffing of their organization, for the goals of their organization. Um, so it's uh, often a, there's a whole parallel set of uh, right. issues that the housing authorities are thinking through right. uh, about their futures. So have you have you always known that you wanted to be a recapitalizer? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, I've been in the affordable housing world for, for my entire career um, and uh, um, spent 15 years in two different nonprofit uh, organizations that were owners and operators of and developers of affordable housing um, and then uh, spent some time uh, consulting with housing authorities uh, before joining the federal government. So I've been uh, trying to build and rehab and create more affordable housing for quite a while. I've, I've been struck by how complicated um, affordable housing finance can get. It's it, kind of like these parfaits, like layer. <laughs> it's like a Smith Island cake of financing yes. to build these things. They definitely are. One of the early ones that I did had, um, early in my career, it was a transaction that somebody else structured, but I was learning a lot through it, had I think it was 14 different sources of financing right. in order to make the, the transaction work. Um, and there is a huge amount of complexity to it. Um, different financing coming with different rules, um, several of them being you know, a local subsidy, a, a state-level subsidy, a federal subsidy, a, uh, you know, a couple different uh, rent support streams. Um, they, they can get really pretty pretty messy. Does, does this program you're working on, does it help kind of at least in, in the instance of these projects, help make it a little tighter, a little more? Um, it doesn't actually necessarily make the financing stack simpler mm -hmm. um, because 
quite honestly, the public housing financing stack is a pretty simple one. You right. just get it from the federal government, <laughs> and that's the end of the line. Soon, right? yeah, fair enough. Um, so it doesn't necessarily make it simpler, but it does um, make it much more focused on a particular property, and the viability of that property needs to be underwritten individually. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot more market discipline to what's going on at a particular site. Um, uh, and th there is uh, part of the shift is a continuation of the work that HUD has been really pushing for a while on um, rigorous asset management and what's the um, the uh, bringing into the portfolio some of the market uh, incentives of you know you need to keep the property in good shape or people are going to start walking with their feet. Right. To, to somewhere else and yeah I think and when you think about in a tight budget environment there are typical kind of the usual suspects of what goes first what you start what, what you cut first and you know an example of that would be training you know typically because it feels discretionary uh, even though I don't necessarily think it is but it feels that way and it gets cut and deferred maintenance is another thing that often it is both in both instances it's a form of maintenance training being the maintenance of human capital and you know the other kind of maintenance upkeep yeah you know, maintenance of your asset management if you will it feels like you capital. can you can put because because on a capital. on a year to by year basis it's like okay if we push this off one more year right. is there a major difference and then those years start building up and then you have two things you've got a backlog that's very expensive and you've got facilities that have deteriorated and may not be appropriate for its ongoing purpose for what it was built. And Dan, you and I have a lot of experience on this kind of just with federal buildings right. and the deferred maintenance impacts. And yeah, but, but, but when you're talking about housing and individuals and their families living in these houses, um, it feels to me just kind of on a human level more, more hitting me more in the gut of how important it is to make sure uh, for, the, for, for those people, the lives they're living, to make sure that those that those houses uh, are at a minimum standard of livability. Um, and, and if I understand correctly, if we just kind of sat back and relied on Congress uh, to fund these in tight budget environments, we're creating this. Well, this relies yeah. on Congress to fund it too, but it relies it the Congress to fund kind of an entitlement. Uh, a rent entitlement, a rent subsidy that people can then move from facility to facility for which that rent subsidy qualifies. Yeah, the Section 8, all of the Section 8 is project-based, so mm -hmm. it's tied to the particular, uh, all the Section 8 within RAD is project-based. Okay. All right. Um, there is a so different, there is a different stuff. flavor of Section 8 that are the mobile vouchers. Mm -hmm. um, one of the nice features of, of RAD is that um, under RAD, the residents um, have a priority status to access the mobile vouchers that they oh, didn't have under pu public housing before. Okay. Um, but it is project-based uh, subsidy, but uh, as you say, there is this uh, commitment to a uh, ongoing rental s subsidy. But the key thing with RAD is that it's a budget-neutral program, so it's uh, unlike Section 8 regularly, which is pegged at a, a fair market rent is the uh, refer it's what it's called. It right. isn't always exactly that, but right. um, um, the uh, standard Section 8 is at the fair market rent. Under RAD, it was authorized as, on a budget neutral basis, so we're only converting the same amount of money that 
the housing authority got before into the Section 8 contract rent. Um, so there's no increase in appropriations at the time of the conversion. Um, <clears throat> so it's really a, a program where does it, that does it, regulatory flexibility is what has allowed... That's where the value... That's where the value comes. The ability to um, tap into the value in the land and borrow against the, the value of the property. Has it, has it kind of put a bracket around the appropriators a little bit, though, whereas they could, you know... Danny over at OMB could have whacked the budget by 20%, and now because it's kind of, um, instead of, uh, because the, it's shifted over to this RAD Section 8 program, does it make it, is it harder for you to cut the budget then? Or Certainly, um, public housing has been cut much more fluidly than the Section 8 portfolio has. So, um, uh, but the, so there is this 20-year commitment. It's um, it's so still subject in, to it is still subject in, yeah. to appropriations in in well, the contracts, but it is a, a and you're also fascinating. I mean, this gets into kind of political science. You're bringing a whole other group of constituents to the table to protect the funding. Yeah, I mean, you're bringing in some well, interesting some capitalized constituents. Yeah, it's probably for a separate right. podcast, Dan. But there's a whole issue around private financing of government capital programs. And well, and we, we had Chris Bertram in here uh, a couple episodes ago talking about P3s and public infrastructure, yeah. so roads, bridges, other types yeah, of Yeah, and when the budgets get tight and you start deferring maintenance on those properties and those infrastructure, you know, there's always this question of how, how can we bring private financing well, in smartly and effectively to... Um, to change the trajectory. I think, Tom, one of the points you made that kind of really hit me is the metric you said about it would have taken 46 years um, at current course and speed. And so I think what we often forget, what, what, what we don't want to lose sight of and what, what we don't want the American people to lose sight of, which I think we often do, is what that actually means in real terms. And so there are people living in these homes um, and uh, at current course and speed the homes they were living in weren't going to get weren't going to get needed updates uh, and needed improvements and repairs uh, for another 46 years, except this program comes in, the RAD program, and really kind of changes the way government does business with Tom and his team of architecting those changes. And as a result, people living in those homes are now getting the repairs they need. And so at the end of the day, there's a lot of technical uh, budget speak behind it, uh, but for me, one of the big things I'm going to take away from this is a, another example of a government employee like you, Tom, who can have an impact. And so for people in public policy schools or in civics classes, you know, considering like what kind of impact can I have if I get into public service, um, I want to help society, I want to help people. This is a great example of the government is intended to do really important things, but sometimes it doesn't work all that effectively. And we need to tinker with it and re-engineer it so that it works more effectively. And when it does, it can have important life-saving or life-changing benefits for people. It really can. And it's really fun to um, talk to some of the residents who have moved into the, the rehab properties. You know, there was uh, one family I was talking to um, in Texas who uh, their, their units had never had air conditioning before. Um, in southern Texas, um, and uh, you know, just 
yeah. Something we sometimes take to And, uh, you know, and the, the rehab units, there was a, a video that I, that one of the housing authorities made of a family going into their unit for the first time and, and the mom was like jumping up and down. She hugged the dishwasher. She was, <laughs> um, it was really endearing. It was really, um, and uh, the, the residents are really seeing a very material difference uh, in, in the quality of their lives. Um, and also sometimes the, one of the things in the, in the RAD program is it, um, it is flexible to what the local needs in the community are. It's, it, we're not dictating what they, uh, how they do it. Um, and so there is also the ability if the site is completely obsolete, um, a lot of housing authorities are taking the assistance and moving them to more appropriate locations. So there's one example that the housing is <coughs> surrounded by a highway and several industrial sites and they're just moving entirely away from that and distributing the 400 units into several 20 to 50 unit developments scattered around uh, around the city uh, in more appropriate places. Um, so there's a lot of real like ripple effects, ripple effects yeah. for the for the families that are living there. Yeah, and so going back to your story, so you you were, you grew up, cut your teeth in public housing, and then when how how many years ago did you join the government? So I uh, joined the government two years ago. Um, okay. I was actually working in <clears throat> two different nonprofits. One of them worked with public housing, and one worked with the Section 8 portfolio. Um, so but that, this could be a world record. Two years into government and nominated for a SAMI. That's pretty impressive. That's why the team is so important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are folks from public housing and, and uh, FHEO and OGC and CPD. They were all part of this. And, uh, it, and then, of course, lots more on the, on the staff throughout the department. Absolutely. That, I, mean, uh, I, I could not. The, I've I, never I'm met a, a Sam person yeah. for a whole lot of people. Exactly. I mean, I mean, if you've, if you've probably never been to the Sammies before, but when you go in, is it September, October, yep. September, you'll see that all the awardees, um, many of them go up there with teams, but many of them spend most of their acknowledgement, part of their remarks, uh, reflecting. I don't think anything gets done in government without a team. It probably Absolutely. life and in yeah. other organizations. Not if, so. not if it's going to involve 70,000 of anything. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> no. Well, uh, Tom, um, we've said this to each one of the SAMI finalists, but um, uh, you know, I'm going to say it again. I, I, you know, I'm really impressed with your project, and we hope you, uh, we hope you win the SAMI. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, and I, and I want to hey, thank you for joining the government, uh, for your service uh, in the government. And uh, you know, I just, I think you should enjoy going to sleep at night every night, knowing that that you're putting your your blood, sweat, and tears and your hard work to a really noble cause, which is improving the quality of life for these people. And so I'm sure they're enormously appreciative. Um, they may not may not even know it, uh, but behind the scenes, there's people like you working uh, passionately to uh, to make their lives better, and that's very inspiring. And I know at the Sammies, uh, the people in the audience and people who read about it online will will be inspired and hopefully it'll inspire people to come to public service knowing they can have the type of impact that you and your team are having. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your service, Tom. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod 
where you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Yeah.